This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This is Monica Perez here with a returning guest, a lawyer from Tennessee, Eric Buchanan, who has an uncanny ability to understand and study the Constitution and explain it to us all in ways that we can understand. He's also quite the student of history and can put these things in context. And that's just what we have in store for you today. So take a deep breath because we are laying down the law with Eric Buchanan. Hey, Eric, thanks for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be here today and for doing a lot of homework, I heard. Yeah. Hey, Monica, how are you doing? Great, thanks. I do like to tell people what you do, both to establish your credentials and also to let them know that there's somebody out there if they have this particular problem. Why don't you tell them what your firm is about? Yeah, sure. Let me start with that. So, hi, everybody. My name is Eric Buchanan. I'm a disability insurance attorney in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, My background very quickly was that I'm a history major at the Virginia Military Institute, Uh, went to the Navy for five years as a a P3 naval aviator, and then I went to Washington and and leave for law school where I paid a special attention to constitutional law. What I do for a living is my firm helps people who have disability insurance problems. So if you have any problems with uh, Hartford, MetLife, Unum, any of those companies that are not paying your disability insurance, uh, you can find us on the World Wide Web at BuchananDisability.com. We help people all over the United States. We have five attorneys. Uh, we'll work with local attorneys uh, everywhere in the United States. We've get, done cases from Minot, North Dakota, to Alaska, to New York City has probably is where we have the most cases filed right now. So somebody who has a disability insurance uh, policy, long-term disability, long-term care, health insurance, and life insurance, that's our little niche. And we help those people all over the United States. Well, that's excellent. And I hope people will keep you in mind if they need any of those services, especially since you do us such a great service uh, at no charge here on Deep Dives. And can you, so the best way to reach you, can someone email you through your website if they just have any random question? Are you yeah, the guy? Yeah, go to the website. That's the best way to reach us. It's BuchananDisability.com uh, and you'll find the, the contact us like a normal website. Okay, awesome. So having... More to do with your academic and intellectual pursuits. We are going to cover a topic from the past that absolutely is reaching into the present. You hear even the term a lot, but I don't think, I mean, when I started looking into this just in preparation for being here to hear what you have to say, I was amazed at how little I knew about the populist movement, how it, uh, its roots, its history, its, um, implications. I picked up a few little tidbits along the way, which I will interject, but why don't you just start from what you think is the beginning? Yeah. So uh, the populist movement in the United States, let's stick with that time period when they actually had a party that people refer to as the populist. We'll kind of start with that. So the basically our, our history lesson starts with the end of the Civil War uh, and America starting to recover from that war. 
um, something like 40% of the population of the United States was were still farmers at that point. And the population of the United States was about 36 million, still pretty small. And, and to kind of put it in perspective, we just lost 600,000 people were killed in the Civil War. Think about that out of 36 million. That's a huge portion of the population was just killed. I mean, it would be 10 times now. Yeah. So, so what started happening after the Civil War in the 1870s is all these people went home from the war, started running their farms again. The, system, the economic system in the South had been totally disrupted. People were moving out West and, and, and starting these farms. And the, the short story of this is that, that the money supply in the United States was shrunk. In the 1870s, they took the United the Congress took the United States off of the silver standard and put us just on the gold standard. So during the Civil War, they'd asked you actually the United States government had actually issued greenback currency, just dollar bills that didn't, weren't backed by any gold, and that lasted until the early 1870s. And then Congress sort of it's a whole separate story. It's a whole like kind of a hidden story where how they snuck this into a law in 1873 and people didn't find out for a couple of years, but they refused to redeem the old notes anymore. And we went basically to a strong gold standard. And that was really good for big business and the people who had money. And if they wanted to loan money out, uh, they could basically charge whatever interest rates they wanted because there just wasn't that money available. So the farmers who basically had gone back home after the Civil War and started farming again, here's, here's like the list of problems they were facing. The McCormick Reaper and the other technology that was happening in the mid-1800s made it so that farmers were five to ten times more productive for the same piece of land. You would think that would be great for each farmer, right? If he could go from 20 bushels of wheat to 200 bushels of wheat for the same acre, that's fantastic, right? Well, if every farmer is doing that, what's the law of supply and demand tell us? <laughs> right. The prices are going to plummet. Yeah, the, the, the prices are going to go down. So there was one problem with the prices going down. Another problem happening was that the the because of the money supply farmers didn't have a lot of cash once a year you get to sell your crop and if everybody else is selling their crop at the same time you might get a pretty cheap price for it so how do these farmers live throughout the year it was called the crop lien system and basically what you have to do is you go to the local general store, local merchant, and say, okay, I need a little sugar, a little coffee. I need you know, whatever I need for supplies to plant next year. You bought it all from the local merchant in town, and he would sell it to you on credit and then collect it from the, at the end of the year when you sold your crop. There were two problems with that. He would, those merchants were generally charging very high interest rates, like 10, 15, 20, 25% interest, and they also had a separate price list for all their goods. So a bag of sugar, if you went in with cash, might be three cents. A bag of sugar, and that was big money, remember, in 1875 or 1880. But if you went in with, with having to borrow against your future crops, the price might be seven cents for that same bag of sugar. So you might pay double for it and then pay interest on the uh, on the additional seven on the additional seven cents, so you're paying interest on all this money. So at the end of the year, when you sell your crops, and maybe you get three hundred dollars for your crops that year, you go back to the merchant, and he says, "Okay, well that's great. You owe me three hundred fifty dollars. So we're just going to add that fifty dollars to next year." And that kept happening year after year after year. 
And the way the farmers were, were basically guaranteed to pay it back, the way the merchants would secure the money, is they would take a, a lien against the farmer's crops. So the farmer didn't even have the choice to go grow a different crop to try a different option, to try to sell it somewhere else. So was there no way to ever get ahead of this? Like these guys could never uh, sell the crops you know, save for one year. Like if you're always behind, if you, if you just had a hundred bucks in the bank, you could get ahead of that process. Yeah. So that was the problem is they, there wasn't enough cash around for them to ever really get ahead. So the, the problems was the prices were dropping because the money supply was shrinking. When we went back on the gold standard, you end up with deflation. The prices were also dropping because productivity had gone up so much. Uh, fertilizer was, was coming around that was better, but so were the, uh, the mechanics like the McCormick Reaper and some of the other technology that were happening, the combine, the combine that f could do everything from cutting the wheat to, sha to shaving it and then stacking it, essentially that came out in the mid-1880s. A horse-drawn combine was, you know, was the technology you can run with horses back then. So the bottom line wow. was the farmers were extremely productive and were getting very little money and they were having to borrow from the merchants. So the question they were asking themselves is exactly what you asked. Well, how do we ever get ahead of this? And so they started organizing and they started coming up with the idea, well, maybe if we start our own stores, we could start co-ops. So the original co-ops were developed around that time. They also thought, well, what if we could find a place to store our crops once we harvest them and that we don't have to sell them right away? If the prices are bad right ah. now, why don't, why don't we Was store them when the prices are better? Wasn't that East of Eden? Wasn't that the premise in East of Eden? Do you remember that one where the guy invented the refrigerator truck? Yeah, that was part of it. That happened later on. The original yeah, but idea, I mean, though, for, that's yeah, the idea. Sure. So the original idea the farmers were having for 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 wheat or cotton was to have they would have these big giant warehouses, and once they put the money in, once they put their crops in the warehouse, they could then borrow money against that. And then sell it when actually the price was up. And, and the idea was to actually have the government come in and pay for these big buildings uh, and ensure that their crops, that they could borrow against it and it would and they would have low interest rates. So the farmers started organizing the, the, the Farmers Alliance is what it was called. Go ahead. Was this something like completely crazy to expect the government to do? Were they talking the federal government? It seems like the government was less interventionist back then, and that would have been like a real reach, or am I wrong about it? Am I just projecting? Yeah, no, that, so that's a great question. That's what's so interesting about the populist movement. So one of the ideas of the populist movement was for kind of the first time since the American Revolution, did a bunch of ordinary folks think, hey, this government's not working for us. Let's do something about it. Hmm. And so they started organizing and started basically they 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 hired their own people to go around and educate other farmers. Um, sort of uh, go ahead. I mean, I just feel like it undermines, totally turns on its head my idea that libertarianism is the founding principle of this country. Because if there was competition for that idea from the get-go, like the government should actually have some affirmative responsibilities, I wouldn't think that that would be considered a federal thing. But was you know, it sounds like the the idea was, you know, people were open to this idea that there was a you know a, a parental role of government. Potentially. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. And so let me give you a short answer. 
If you, if you talk to the bankers in New York, they would agree with you. We don't need to have government do this kind of stuff. If you talk to the guys who were running the railroads in the 1800s, we don't need the government to do this kind of stuff. If you talk to most business owners in the South, they would say we don't need the government being involved. If you talk to the farmers who were getting mm. screwed, mm. they were trying to come up with new ways of dealing with this. So the the after the Civil War, you had Reconstruction going on. You had uh, the kind of the early phases of socialism that Eugene Debs running as a socialist that happened in the 1890s. That was well before the communist revolution. Right. So socialist ideas were going around. And what happened was these farmers basically started to organize. And when they came up with the original idea of let's do co-ops and let's see if we can pledge our own crops to fund these co-ops and maybe build our own buildings to store the, the money, I mean, store the crops they the basically the merchants and the banks wouldn't deal with them. They tried to lock them out. They tried to keep their monopoly of being the ones that were loaning the money and charging these high interest rates of the farmers. So the whole idea of the farmers alliance started out with, well, let's try within the system that we're facing, can we fight this system or or have a better solution in the system to have co-ops where we can buy our own supplies and not be charged interest? And as a libertarian, I try to think back, like if they if their fundamental problem was that the way money worked was wrong and the government was in control of that, or that was maybe unconstitutional, or the way banks got chartered, the way banks operated, or the way railroads got easements. You know, I'm just trying to justify in my mind sympathizing with these guys. By saying, well, it's not like these were just mom and pop entrepreneurship and business and banking and railroads that a free market would have cleared it. There were systemic problems that the government may be responsible for. And therefore, these farmers wanted to uh, turn to a government solution because a free market solution wasn't even possible because some of these markets, money, banking, railroads were actually already influenced by government action. That yeah, possible? that's a great point. And that's one of the arguments that we'll kind of get to in a little bit when we get to the Teddy Roosevelt version of progressivism. <laughs> um, the idea that if the government has already created these protections, then maybe the government has some other responsibilities. Yeah. But I have beef with Teddy, so I'm sorry. I have beef with Teddy Roosevelt. So we'll we'll get to that when we get to it. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, and that's gonna be 25 years into this podcast. <laughs> right, right. I'm not gonna derail you, I promise. Yeah. Yeah, so the populism movement really got going in the 1880s as these guys tried to do um, uh, different things to to form the co-ops, to form their own markets, to be able to store their own grain. And they kept running into these – the people who had the money wouldn't loan them money, would, would, didn't want to upset the system. The banks wouldn't wouldn't deal with them. And so they, they actually started thinking, well, maybe the solution is we need the government to provide – these opportunities and need to loosen the money supply, allow us to put our money in these buildings and also regulate the railroads because the railroads were also charging exorbitant rates. So the farmers, when they could make, get it, uh, when they could go ahead and sell their crops for a decent rate, they still had to pay a big fee to the, to the railroads because the railroads basically paid for or collected the money for, uh, the crops, no matter, like you had to get it to Chicago and whatever it cost to get it to Chicago, the railroad would charge the same rate, whether you were sending it from Omaha or Topeka or Dallas. And so there was, there was this kind of a, a, a monopoly that it happened. And here's the big kind of political argument. Did it happen because it was a capitalistic system that was unregulated 
or did it happen because it was a system that was kind of a crony capitalist system where the these big businesses had protection? Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And I'll throw this out here. It opens up the fair question is, is it the, should a libertarian government at least have the role of breaking up monopolies? Where do you, oh, where do you fall on I'm that? I'm going to give you this. So first of all, the, yeah. the railroad thing was just riddled with bad government policy, just riddled with. And the only railroad that really survived in the end, wasn't that the Hill Railroad where the guy actually went outside that system? I think they made perverse incentives with cheap bonds and overbuilt. And then there were all sorts of problems, probably the East-West stuff, not necessarily what you're talking about now. But uh, so I would say, I would argue that there there are no natural monopolies, none. And I'll tell you why I say that, because the only thing that could really be a monopoly is something that has no substitute. And the only things that have no substitute are not subject to scarcity. So like the things that you need without substitute, food, water, shelter, clothing, those are really basically the only things you need and because those aren't really scarce in the free market, in a free market, then anything else you can get around. So even roads, okay, if a guy wants to build a store and somebody else wants to build an apartment building, they can build the roads. Will they have a monopoly? Well, they'll have a monopoly between that, but you build yourself another store, you build yourself another apartment building, you build yourself another road. I mean, we can get to the nuances of it, but I've been thinking about this for a long time. Yeah, I'm with you. I think those are those are good arguments. Here's the here's what the far here's what a farmer would have said to you in 1890. Yeah, good. What I make about $300 a year, and I go into debt about $350 a year. I'm not going to come up with the money to build my own railroad to get my but, crops to Chicago. But why why is it like that? It sounds like there was an oversupply of food, of crops. Well, so yeah, that's a big part of this story is that the United States after the Civil War began to see the advance of technology really play out in the agricultural industry. Let me just put it this way. If you go back to before McCormick's Reaper, which was invented in the 1850s, and really it wasn't until after the Civil War that you could buy them all over the country. So effectively around the Civil War, and McCormick's Reaper eventually was the company International Harvester. So it was, it was the, that company started in the 1840s. Some people started using it in the 1850s. By the end of the Civil War, if you could borrow enough money to buy a McCormick Reaper, it could really dramatically increase your, your productivity. And if you couldn't, you probably could not compete. The technology made obsolete the like hand-to-mouth type of farming. So maybe this or, was just the death throes of an obsolete system. 
Yeah. So there, yeah. So there's kind of you, or you could still barely make a living if you still used a plow and used a mule. My point was this: before the McCormick Reaper, the farming in the United States would have been the same. You wouldn't have to teach a Roman citizen in 200 BC any new skills. Right. Okay. They, they basically farmed the same way that the Romans had 2200, 2100 <laughs> years earlier. That it, it was using a plow and yeah, planting the, plow the seeds was that the way. Pivot right. and right. then the harvester. Right. So what we had happened between 1860 and 1900 is a dramatic change in technology. And my analogy, when we talk about this later today, of, of where we are with the, the same kind of push for populism is, think about the huge portion of the population in the 1950s and 60s that worked in big industry and could make a middle-class living working in a factory. What happens when we as a nation stop being a factory-based a production system and instead become a service industry or a knowledge-based industry. The same kind of transition was happening in the United States in the late 1800s. We were going from an agricultural country to an industrial country. And if your skill set was pushing a plow and, and growing cotton or growing wheat, you were becoming more productive, but so productive that we didn't need all of you and, we did, and, the, and the, right. the value of the crops was going down. I mean, a lot of times that actually means you spend more time doing something because it's so much more valuable. It's more valuable on the world market. So when they invented the washing machine, the hours a person spent doing laundry went up because <laughs> now we wash our clothes every day instead of once a month. So, I mean, that may not even be true, but it gets the point across. So it's possible that if you are, if you could compete with other markets. And I would also wonder, I don't expect you to know the answer, but if there was there were systematic incentives for International Harvester or the McCormick Reaper to to get production out there, did they get cheaper loans? And in which case you have subsidized tech and capital pushing out the little guy, fostering mega farms or big money farms, and that would change the political landscape, which I think is maybe where you had. Yeah, well, I think the McCormick Reaper was was eventually cheap enough that by the 1870s and 1880s, a whole lot of farmers in the Midwest could do it. But because the railroad system, you had commoditized, commoditized these the wheat and cotton, for example, mm -hmm. and the worldwide market for cotton right. had changed because during the Civil War, the British said, "Well, we can't rely on the South anymore, so, so let's start." Let's yeah. go to let's go to Egypt. Let's go to India, and they gr started growing cotton there, and it replaced the uh, so the value of cotton in the 1870s and 1880s dropped dramatically, uh, while the technology was getting a little better for wheat. The technology got way better because of the McCormick Reaper fertil fertilizer, and we had opened up the prairies, so there were these big giant areas where wheat could be grown. So a small wheat farmer couldn't really compete, and so what was happening was maybe a few rich farmers who were successful would go ahead and offer loans for these other farmers' crops, and they would use that money at the general store. But basically, they would get so far behind doing it that way that the farmer, that the big farmer would seize the, would seize their land, would, would condemn it because they weren't paying off their loans. So you either got in so much debt that you owed the country store a bunch of money, or you got in so much debt that you end up losing your land to the big farmers, and you went from being an independent farmer who was not making any money to being a sharecropper who wasn't making any money. You know, this uh, worries me because I'm, I have this crisis of ideology right now, 
personally, where I hear something like that and I think, well, I mean, I'm sorry, buddy, but the world will get fed better if we have this new technology. I mean, you have you could have an end to poverty if you can increase yields by 10 times. And that did happen with the green revolution of the 60s. And there's all sorts of problems with that. And maybe it didn't last. But to the extent it did alleviate poverty, it's a great thing. And if some people are displaced and have to go work in a factory instead of have their small farm, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. But as a person who now witnesses the dehumanization that happens when you upend a culture, and especially particularly when you separate people from the land, from creating their own food, it's it makes me think as like my libertarian self says that it's homo economicus, whatever man is just an economic animal. But uh, you know, at the, maybe the older I get, maybe just seeing the devastation of. Uh, the Great Reset and the Build Back Better movements that I just, I want to save them. I want to go back in time and save those small farmers, but it's hard for me to reconcile my ideology with the fact that culture matters. And I also ask myself, is it possible to save a culture in the face of technology? I know like Chinese dynasties in the past had suppressed actual technology in order to preserve the culture because they knew it would change things so fundamentally that the system wouldn't work anymore. So, you know, I'm totally against the government fostering technological change, but I certainly wouldn't want them to suppress it either. Yeah. And so the, the technological change at the time was dramatic, which I'd like to talk about in a second, but let's just kind of wrap up where the populist movement was going. So they kind of, basically the farmers had that instinct that you had, and that was a, a big part of what this fight was about. We're a bunch of American farmers. We should have what Thomas Jefferson said is the foundation of America, which is all these uh, European, uh, I mean, I'll, all these uh, yeoman farmers, we should have our small gentleman farms, we should be able to maintain our own standard of living and should be able to live this lifestyle. What they couldn't do is do that in the face of, A, dramatically increased productivity, dramatically increased transportation opportunities, so that increased the competition. If you were a farmer in Tennessee, your wheat prices, you were now competing against farmers in Nebraska, not just farmers in the next county over because of railroads commoditizing it, because it could be sent around. So they eventually came up with a system of, well, if the banks aren't going to let us borrow money in a different format when we organize, if we're not going to be able to build our own co-ops because we can't organize well enough to come up with enough cash, then the government should come in and save us. And we and they, they started talking about internally that we are a democracy. They started using democracy instead of republic. And they started essentially saying, we should be able to influence as the, the free members of this American society, the federal government should start getting more and more involved to help us save our lifestyle. That was a, that was a, a really bare bones kind of boiled it down what the populists were really trying to do. What you're reminding me is that all the knock-on effects of bad policy. So let's say the East-West railroads, which were completely riddled with bad policy, overbuilding, all of that kind of stuff. Um, if they, that would subsidize this commoditization that you're talking about, and not only that, but it would allow for these massive city centers away from the heartland so that now we have, what, like half the population lives in the coasts. And then you have problems with, you know, you have people don't want the electoral college, they want the popular vote, all this stuff that was designed to allow for that kind of population lumping, that it wouldn't even be as much of a problem if 
if that transfer, that's why I don't even like the interstate highway system. What it does is it allows, it subsidizes, um, it, 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 it rests on a myth that the efficiencies, the economies of scale are so enormous that you only need like a couple of huge, huge farms. Whereas if you took away the subsidies of the rails and the interstate highway system, you would have more local farming. You would have uh, population centers closer to the food because it would be cheaper to get it there. So I do feel like there is a network of policy choices of whether they were intentional or not that exacerbated this problem. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting part about this because there definitely were subsidies from the government to build the Transcontinental Railroad, for example. They gave them easements. They gave them land. They they were able to sell the land along the railroad tracks to raise the money to build the railroads. And the bonds the were very cheap. I'm sorry? They subsidized the financing as well. Yeah, yeah, and the bonds were subsidized, right. So there was already this idea out there in the in the marketplace of ideas in the 1800s for farmers to say, well, if you're going to do this for the railroad guys, why don't you do that for us? That was, that was one of the arguments. Uh, the other side of that is a lot of the railroads that were built in the Northeast uh, that were profitable early on were not necessarily built with those subsidies. And some of those railroads got pretty big pretty pretty quickly. So there was kind of, you know, for the big railroad barons, the robber barons, some of them got their money because the government really helped them out, some of them because they had great ideas and built great railroads that were very, very productive and advanced the United States. I, that was always my default position. And then when I saw some of the, like what Rockefeller did to defraud um, the some small oil guys out of their positions, then I said, okay, these are, they, you know, maybe I, I always defended the robber barons, but if they were really rob, they weren't robbing the people by selling them stuff they wanted. They were robbing us competitors from their rights against fraud and that kind of thing. So I, I agree, it's definitely a mixed bag. Yeah. So yeah, some of them got a lot of help from the government. Some of them were just very. Uh, anti-competitive businessmen naturally based on the rules they had at the time and, and some of them were just darn good businessmen. So all this was going on at the same time. So ultimately, what was key about the populist movement in the in the late 1800s that kind of made it distinct, uh, the book you and I talked about, The Populist Moment. So the, oh, yeah. the author from that book, basically his Goodwin. The Populist Moment by Lawrence Goodwin. Uh, first of all, footnote to this conversation, the guy is a 1970s academic lefty. That's the, that's how it's written. I wasn't advocating the book so much, but it is, you know, it does introduce you to their side. Like the person who told me to get this book was a rare breed these days of like a genuine intellectual lefty who just believes in this ideology and sees the corruption in the world today that is based on that ideology not being executed in good faith. But I, you know, I thought it's interesting. You, you kind of have to have their side of the story. So I didn't mind that he was the lefty. Yeah. And, and so reading that book since the last time you and I talked, he talks a lot about the, the farmers were facing the hierarchical, hierarchical found culture that they, that they were engaged in, that they were having to climb up, climb up the hill against the, the accepted culture of their time. A lot of the same kind of stuff we're hearing people talk about now. Was uh, that valid in your opinion, his assessment about the hierarchy and culture? Because that's a theme of everybody who talks about the populist stuff. And I just wonder if that rang true to you. So that that terminology I kind of had to parse through and translate. It was 1970s academic lefty talk. Uh, but what are we really talking about? And And so... I think the the fair discussion to have about the farmers in the late 1800s and, and other democratic movements throughout time is, it, are there really institutions and laws in place that protect 
the business interest or the rich people to the detriment of the poor people to make it an unfair playing field? I think that's really the fair question. Um, and and the the how do you overcome those those problems in a democratic way or in a in a way that's a, in in a constitutional republic? And a lot of what the populists were about was it was kind of the first moment in America when instead of thinking of ourselves as a constitutional republic and we trust our betters, it was a lot of working class people, especially the farmers. And they did a little, they, they engaged a lot eventually with the Knights of Labor, which was the early version of the labor unions, to have the idea that, hey, it's a democracy, our vote counts too. What can we do to make the country better, work for us, preserve our way of life by using the power of the ballot? And that was essentially the new idea that came through in American politics and populism. A couple of things they were fighting against, I think, are important to note that, that end up playing into what ultimately happened to the populist movement. A big one is in the 1800s, I mean, 1860s, 70s, and 80s, and into the 1890s, if you were in the South and people were trying to convince you to leave the Democrat Party and join the populist party, Basically, the, the answer was, wait a minute, the Democrats were the ones that, that we were, the, that was the party of our fathers. That was the party that my dad went to go fight at Gettysburg and was, was killed for going to, that the Democrats are what we always believe in. And if I'm not a Democrat, my neighbors are going to think I'm a traitor. They're going to think I'm supporting the Republicans or that I'm, I'm just not, not supporting you know, the whole traditions of our culture down here. If you went up north, it was exactly the opposite. You want me to leave the Republican Party, the party that saved the Union, the party that freed the slaves, the party that we still go to the grand old Republic and, and uh, uh, meetings where it's all the Union veterans and their sons uh, who really so still the, being a Republican means being in favor of the Union and being in favor of winning the Civil War. That whole concept was basically if you tried to leave the Republican Party in the North or the Democrat Party in the South, the people who tried to stop you from doing that, they called it waving the bloody shirt. You're all yes, that blood. Yes. That, yeah. All that blood that was wasted, and now you're going to try to leave that. So that's what On the, both sides, right? Both sides yeah, kind of did Both that. sides did it. Um, and there were some rare exceptions in the late 1880s and early 1890s where people started to, to go against that, but it didn't ultimately succeed. So this was pivotal in locking in the two-party system eventually, right? I mean, it, it seems to me like the, the biggest, the most divisive issue there ever could have been in our history to make that two-party system, um, you know, intractable would have been that where you, you lost your sons. Yeah, that's that. I think that's absolutely right. That the two parties. So the Republicans were a brand new party in the 1850s. Before that, it was the Democrats and the Whigs. The, the Whigs, Whigs kind of fell apart. The Republicans came in as the party of mostly of freedom of the slaves. A little. They had some fights over tariffs, and tariffs were really important back then because we didn't have an income tax yet. Um, and so there were fights over that. But mostly, other than the question of slavery and union. There really were not dramatic differences between Republicans and Democrats when it came to, for example, economic policy. They were a lot more laissez-faire. Both sides were fairly conservative on religious issues. They were fairly conservative on economic issues. They both were willing to engage in some protectionism of big business about equally. What was, If you were to describe the business approach to the Democrat Party and the business approach to the Republican Party in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, what do you think the difference was? Uh, the Democrats versus the, uh, the business policy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it sounds to me like there was no business policy at the 
government level until, you know, we don't, that came later. Yeah. I mean, or they just didn't agree, disagree with each other very much. The well, big what was it? What was the policy? What, what were policies? So a, a, a like lot of the policies in the late 1800s were using the terminology of laissez-faire, using the terminology right, okay, of right. capitalism, using Which the means terminology no policy. Yeah, of having no policy, right. but in reality, sort of putting in place some policies that favored big business and big industry. Um, the, Inter the Interstate Commerce Commission was founded in the 1880s, and it was supposed to begin regulating the railroads. It was the first of the big administrative agencies. And the, and the end of the Constitution. Yeah, sort of the end of the Constitution in some ways. <laughs> the, 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 right to, the right to regulate interstate commerce is in the Constitution, and the, Cong and, and, the and the Congress has the right to do that. So here's one of the examples of the things that were changing in that time period in the 1880s and 1890s. The Reading Railroad alone had 100,000 employees. It was the largest corporation in the United States wow. by the 1880s. That's and, amazing. And it covered something like 17 states. So if you go back to wow. the, the way the government ran in the 1870s and 1880s, there was no government that had control over that railroad. There was no government that could regulate. Each state had their own rules, so each state had to regulate the piece of that railroad that was in their state. So if they wanted to pass a safety rule, maybe they could, um, but it would only apply within that state. So, And what if, what if somebody wanted to, say, regulate the rates of railroads, for example? Now, you and I as libertarians are not necessarily in favor of re regulating the rates of railroads. It's tricky, though. If you gave them easements and subsidies, like that equals that you gave them tax dollars, you know. Yeah, exactly. If we're going to give you tax dollars, then you have to agree to ship the wheat for no more than five cents a bushel or whatever, it. It is, or three cents, whatever the cost is. Um, and so if, but, but who's going to do that? And, and the federal government until the Interstate Commerce Commission didn't have anybody who was really, really doing that. Uh, so they came along and they were supposed to regulate railroad rates. And they did it kind of minimally at first. It wasn't exactly that helpful. This is one reason the populist movement kind of really got going. They said, well, that's a good idea. Now I'll actually do it. And that's what they wanted the government to do was really regulate railroads. And um, how sympathetic are you to their cause? From a constitutional point of view, I think they have a point that their votes should count. And I think they have every right to organize. They have every right to try to teach themselves a better system. They have, better, uh, they have a, every right to have their own leaders. And if they want to form a third party, have at it. If the policy positions of your third party are a bunch of, of big government ideas of, of expanding the government, you need to do that by amending the Constitution. And that's actually started with eventually what, the, what they pushed for um, I know, but that you really don't want, I mean, that's not good enough for me. Like I hear what you're saying, like it's unconstitutional. It's therefore illegal and uncontemplatable short of an amendment, but an amendment like that would so fundamentally change the structure because you would have to have more authority, more enforcement, more taxation, and none of which really lives in the constitution. Yeah. And that's it would have a lot of implications. Yeah, so that that's ultimately how we get to the progressive era, which really okay. starts with Teddy Roosevelt gonna, in 1900. I always um, jump your gun. I'm not doing it. Yeah, so so 
let's kind of talk a little wrap up with this about the progressive, the yeah. populist movement, just to kind of cover this very yeah. quickly. So by 1892, they put up their own candidate and their own candidate in 1892 oh, yeah. uh, got like eight states to vote for him. Was it Tom Watson? It was, let me make sure I get it right. There was a Congress, I think a guy who actually had been a congressman. Uh, it was James Weaver. Oh. He got, J James Weaver got 22 electoral votes. Benjamin Harrison got 145 and, De and Grover Cleveland got 277 electoral votes. Grover Cleveland won. Here's a trivia question for you real quick before we stop right here. Between the between, Abraham Lincoln was elected in 1860 as a Republican, first Republican elected. Republican Party came out of nowhere right before the Civil War. He so he gets elected. Andrew Johnson is his vice president. Is uh, was a Democrat, and they in 1864 he ran under the National Union Party by having a vice president as a Democrat in order to keep get Democrat votes. Oh, to support so him it had already because at one point. The vice president and the president were elected separately, but this that was had already, on one that had already gone away. The constitution gone, right? already been amended. They were they ran on the same ticket, and the idea was to have a combined ticket. So when President Lincoln was shot, a Democrat became president, which wow. led to all kinds of trouble. And Andrew Johnson oh was impeached, God. and he wanted That's to be soft crazy. on the South and all kinds of history. And we'll skip over that for a second. Between Abraham Lincoln and Woodrow Wilson being elected in 1912, how many Democrats were elected to the presidency? Since before Wilson from Abraham so Lincoln elected, so was Andrew Johnson never was elected? Not elected? Okay, he, so like he, he only served out one term basically. Ford, Ford wasn't even elected to VP. So um, right. okay, so Wilson Jefferson was a Democrat. After the, I'm talking about after Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Oh, after Abraham Lincoln. So Abraham Lincoln was followed wasn't by Teddy Johnson. Roosevelt. A Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican. Oh, cool. Right. Okay. I don't know. I guess none. One. None. <laughs> the, the answer was one president twice, Grover Cleveland. So really? What is, was he up to? He's one of those. He has to be a great one because I never heard anything he ever did. <laughs> he was actually probably the most libertarian president we had in the 1800s. Yeah, I believe it. I would I would argue that he was maybe the most libertarian president we ever had. And so when he when he uh, ran for office, he, he got elected when the Republicans were kind of have an internal fighting. Um, he lost the next election and then he ran again. And so he served two separate terms. The end of his second term uh, was the 1896 election. So as his term is ending, he's basically a libertarian Democrat. And he, um, but what they called them back then was they called them bourbon Democrats. Okay. A bourbon Democrat. They also called him the gold staff. Democrats. He was for a strong gold backed dollar and very small government, reducing the tariff Hi. rates, those kind of things. I think I'm a Grover Cleveland Democrat. I'm going to call myself a Grover yeah, Cleveland. Yeah, it's actually it's actually a pretty good. You know, that's <laughs> that's the title. So in 1892, the the populists put up James Weaver, who wins 22 electoral votes. Not a whole lot going on. But the Democrats in the South managed to convince most, most of the populist-leaning farmers to vote for them. And so you started having Southern Democrats who were at least using the populist words, at least saying that we need more regulation of the railroads, that we need uh, fiat dollars, we need dollars that are not backed by gold, we need more silver-based coinage. And um, as as they were 
convincing more and more people in the Democrat Party to at least mouth those words, what happened in 1896 was that the Democratic National Convention, remember at the time the Democrats are, uh, well, both parties at their national conventions, they're not doing any kind of primaries. You basically vote when you get there, and it's an old boys club of people voting. And when they get there, the um, it, it goes through multiple ballots. And finally, this guy named William Jennings Bryan stands up, and he gives this speech that concludes with him holding out his arms like he's Jesus on the cross and says, you shall not crucify man upon a cross of gold. The, the famous cross of William gold Jennings speech. Cross of gold <laughs> speech. That so impresses the Democrats who are there that they nominate him. And that so impresses the populace when they hear about it, that they nominate him to be their candidate. And they combine both. Basically the populist all become Democrats. He loses to William McKinley in the election of 1896. McKinley serves for a little over a term and just barely into a second term. He's shot and Teddy Roosevelt becomes president. Why was he shot? Oh, Teddy Roosevelt was his vice president. And Teddy Roosevelt was that his vice president. <laughs> McKinley was shot by an anarchist while he was at the World's oh, Fair. Oh, come on. They always pin it on the anarchists. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if Teddy was benefiting. Anyway, that's probably out there. I'll take that yeah. back. I'll take that back. So, so the populace. So at that point, when the populace combined with the Democrats, it became really accepted in politics at the time. Both parties sort of became reform parties. They became more progressive. They wanted to address the problems of the little guy. They wanted to address the problems of the excesses of of business. They both recognized that uh, there were a lot of voter out, voters out there that were not happy with the way that things were going. So let's just kind of uh, just set the stage a little bit for this time period. The population of the United States at the end of the Civil War was 36 million. By 1900, it was 78 million. It had basically doubled. Um, this time period was, Mark Twain called it the Gilded Age. He did not mean that as a compliment. Right. He meant that as it looks really pretty on the outside because these rich people are building these nice houses, but it's all founded on basically you're, you're spray painting gold. You're, you're painting gold paint on some really ugly stuff uh, because businesses were kind of pretty corrupt on the inside was his argument. Uh, by 1900, you had Upton Sinclair write his book, the jungle about how dangerous and gross the meatpacking industry was in Chicago. I've heard that either that was way exaggerated or way, Undersaggerated, like I, I've heard that it's one or the other. Do you have an opinion? Yeah, my opinion is he was a socialist and he was specifically writing that to try to bring in more regulation. Um, and he certainly did sway public opinion. Um, I have also heard stories about how bad the butcher shops in the butcher industry was around that time, that it was pretty darn gross. Um, what I mean, was I the think that book is where like. It's like Rasputin, the murder of Rasputin. Like he gets shot, he gets hit in the head, he gets drowned, he gets starved. You know, like everything happens to this one guy. Yeah. So I'm sure it told a deeper truth. You know, facts are facts, but truth is truth. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure it was yucky. I guess I just uh, I I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me because I'm such a free market, true believer 
And when I see the cultural fallout of the things that are attributed to capitalism, like nowadays, and I feel like, but so much of that is because it isn't actually a free market. It isn't where you could butcher, like here, like pot and stuff. They make it legal and then they put a bunch of regulations on it. So you're not just growing in your backyard. You end up going to the store and getting like this concentrated vape stuff. Like I feel like uh, sometimes the, you know, even now they don't let, certain people in certain places slaughter their own animals where it might be more natural and even more sanitary in many respects. You have to use industrial farming. It's cheaper. It's more facilitated by policy to use industrial farming. So I always want to dig into the things that we consider to be, you know, basic facts on that stuff. Not you. I'm not asking you to do it, but yeah, for me. And, and I, I'm totally with you. So letting small farmers and people kill their own chickens to do what they want to with it is one thing. You know, overregulating that is a, is a big deal. If you're, but when we're talking about whole giant, uh, you know, factory settings in Chicago where it was acres and acres and acres of people working really, really tough hours, he may have had a point. Um, so was it really true? I, I'm not the expert on that. But my point is, during that age, it was certainly politically influencing that that was the narrative that was being created. Yeah, and I do believe in, I'm, I'm starting to dig into this, the enclosure period in England where it, it intentionally, I think, like... Um, Whatever, I won't get into that. But one of the things that this policy, this disruptive policy did was drive small farmers into the cities, which provided industrial labor. So it is possible that squeezing out that, that the corporate interests wouldn't want to help those small farmers that were having these problems to the extent that, you know, and that's what I, I get out of this book maybe a little bit, is that there was a top-heavy politics that they, you know, it would be in everybody's interest to make sure that those farmers yield to big farms and then move into the city so that there isn't this huge population in the farmlands. Rather, they're in there to be or or have to be forced to the big farms to work for somebody else. It is possible that there was that yeah, was I'm, a reason. I'm not sure that there was that big a conspiracy to that, that it made that that ultimately happened is certainly. What, what well, everyone's happened. interests. Like it, it doesn't. You don't have to conspire if your interests align and you have power. Right. And all, the, all roads point to you know little people at big farms. Right. And the the counterpoint I was going to make is the interest of the merchant class and the railroad class was to have all of these farmers out there continue doing what they were doing and basically not making much of a living, but providing them these commodities that they could go sell on the market. While at the same time, the merchants could sell their sugar and their coffee and their molasses and whatever, you know, shoes and whatever else they sold at the general store for a significantly higher price and plus interest uh, than what they could sell to somebody who just walked in with cash. And so it was a made their business, the merchants in the, in the small, uh, you know, uh, the small agricultural communities were making a lot of money. They weren't all Mr. Olson, Olson on the little house on the prairie. It was all Mrs. Olson running all those businesses and being very, very strict Ebenezer Scrooge-like when it came to, <laughs> uh, you know, collecting the interest and, and making all the and, and doing all the uh, forcing people to pay stuff and then taking a lien against their crops if they didn't pay. Um, I just want to kind of just to set up a couple other things for this for this time time frame. Um, a lot of people also call this the second industrial revolution. And if you think about the dramatic changes in technology, we think about that now, how things are changing. Uh, but there were 440,000 patents issued in the United States between 1870 and 1900. 
Wow. It reminds me of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, so it's it's a dramatic increase in the in the in the power of industry. Thomas Edison was around at this time. So if the Civil War ended, if you wanted to stay up late reading a book, you had to have a candle or a lantern. Yeah, Thomas Edison was a piece of crap. Just so you know. I'm sorry. Thomas Edison was a piece of crap. Just yeah, so you know. Yeah, there's a lot of stories about. It, but <laughs> but on the other hand, his uh, his laboratory, the Menlo Park, New Jersey laboratory, did produce a lot of stuff that changed how Americans lived. Okay. And whether, some, whether he stole some of that or not is a whole yeah. different story. Okay. I'm the talking about the Westinghouse Tesla stuff, the electricity, his wasn't as good. And there was all sorts of, I mean, I think it's well established. He killed that elephant, but I think he was a bad guy, but yeah. Okay. It doesn't mean he didn't uh, add some value, but just- whether it was him or not, think about those things that happened during that time period. It was the, uh, and I'm sorry, there's a fire engine going by outside. But the, if you, at the end of the Civil War, if you wanted to stay after dark, you had to light a candle or a lantern. And what, that was tough to do. Most people lived uh, dawn to dusk, and then you went to bed at night because you didn't have much reading light. By 1900, a lot of cities had electricity, and the light bulb was was out there. The telephone got invented during this time period. I the telegraph. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I have to say it did occur to me that if we didn't have electricity and could not read so much, we could not be propagandized as much. You can go back like there's there are people who will just, you know, reductio ad absurdum where you can just keep going back and it's kind of like Ted Kaczynski, just go back and back and back to where like the fall of man is the invention of fire or something. So so to that point, on one counterpoint is because these farmers were fairly literate. They eventually had their own newspapers that were te- they were used they were self educating. They had people going around who would actually teach the farmers about economics and about the government and what the Constitution said and how we might be able to use the government, arguably to do certain things for us. Uh, the modern term for them, I would call them community organizers. That's essentially what they had going on. They had their own education system. They had their own newspapers. But Alt to media. your point, I'm sorry. Alt media. Yeah. But to your point, what was the mainstream media called in the 1880s and 1890s and early 1900s? Yellow journalism. This is the time period of of William Randolph Hearst and uh, Joseph Pulitzer. They both dramatically grew their their, uh, circulation for the newspapers and made crap tons of money themselves uh, by – I basically it was called muckraking. They they had a name for it back then. It was now we call it fake news. Back then it was called muckraking. It's it's kind of the same concept. Um, so there's a lot of kind of similarities between back then and today in terms of technologies dramatically changing. There's questions about what the role of the government should be. Uh, there's questions about um, you know how should we rein in. Uh, the media? Should we do something about them? Should we have our own sources of news? That's that's a, a big part of what populists actually did that I kind of do like, is if you're going to start your own institutions, start your own institutions legally under the law. Yeah, I mean, they maybe were on that path, but like all alt media, it's going to get hijacked and those avenues of influence. I mean, that's how even movie theaters in small towns, they had to have those censorship laws so that people would accept it. The internet was a limited hangout. For a long time, we could get the real truth out of the internet, and now everybody's on it. They get the real truth from us on Facebook and stuff, everything about our lives, but we no longer get it from them. So it is, it's a wedge in the beginning, I'm sure. It had to have value or people wouldn't see any value in it. Yeah, and so what ultimately happened? Well, 
more and more media sources were out there that eventually were able to kind of fight back. But there's also, so for example, Joseph Pulitzer had a change of heart. He eventually funded the journalism department at Columbia, which for a long time actually was pretty solid on objective journalism, although more modern trends, they've be, I think they've, they've been influenced again. But the but we went through this kind of this cycle where we had muckraking yellow journalism, and then we developed the idea of professional journalism. Eventually evolved out of that. It took a couple decades, but it eventually evolved out of that. Um, so let's, let's get to where I'm interested. I feel like populism was hijacked or redirected into progressivism. I always smelled a rat with progressivism, which is how I discovered this book, The Populist Moment, because I mentioned that to my erudite liberal friend, and he was like, yeah, it's not progressivism that was the answer. It was populism. And I always felt like maybe progressivism was a way that big business got themselves regulated to where they don't even get competition. I always felt progressivism was a huge trap. And I'm interested to know if they were inspired by populism or if it was an answer to populism, like a trap. Like I feel like Marx and the Russian revolution and all that stuff was just, there was going to be another populist moment. So they converted it into something that was even more power concentrated at the top. Yeah. So I think it was both. I think the, the, the populism was forcing the government to start to look at whether or not we need to change our laws to protect the little guy or provide some more opportunities and rein in big business and whether or not that needed to be done with less benefits given to big business or actually having new regulation to balance out the regulation that they had done to old business. And eventually the, the, the what happened was that the Democrats put up William Jennings Bryan. He ended up running three different times as the Democrat candidate, and he ran on these very populist platforms, including the idea of silver money and fiat money. A lot of that kind of calmed down when the Klondike gold rush produced enough gold that the money supply ended up being uh, less of a problem. So then the real problem became, well, what do we do about these big corporations, the giant trusts, where the railroads all agreed to collude to... Uh, to maintain the same the same rates and Teddy Roosevelt came along with what he called the square deal that was the first real progressivism and the square deal was he called it the 3 Cs it was consumer protection corporate regulation and conservation and so the idea of corporate regulation reigning in these big corporations that would never exist if government didn't first give them the benefit of having the protections of a corporation consumer protections, there should be some laws to balance the playing field that if corporations are doing stuff that's bad, that consumers should have the right to sue and have people protect them. I would argue that those are torts. They're in common law. You and I are on the same page. That okay. the, if, the, if, the, if the court system worked right, work properly, you should be able to sue big corporations using right. court law and maybe breach a contract law, depending on how it's worked. Yeah, there's lots uh, of things. On yeah. the situation. Yeah. So ultimately, that's kind of how progressivism got its foot in the door was Teddy Roosevelt kind of being mild on let's have some regulations but still protect big business. And just the industrialization of the age and the idea that the, all these businesses had all these advantages, once that started to be part of the narrative, then there started to be this political fight of who can be most progressive and who can be most progressive and get elected. So Teddy Roosevelt gets reelected in 1904 on a progressive message that's kind of we'd consider it today to be very moderate or, or low-level regulation, but still progressive. Taft wins in 1908, and he really draws back on progressivism. So in 1912, and this is kind of where I'd like to wrap it up, the big election that changed everything 
was Taft wanted to be low regulation. Teddy Roosevelt said, wait a minute, we need to have some moderate regulation of these big businesses. So he ended up running to for the nomination again to become president again. He loses, so he forms a third party, the Progressive Party or Bull Moose Party. They end up getting more votes than the Republicans, but they spread out the vote so much that the Democrat with 41% of the popular vote wins 400 electoral votes, and that's Woodrow Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson's an academic who loves big government and loves the idea that we need a bunch of experts to run things better, and that's where progressivism really got its foothold. You don't think Teddy Roosevelt did that on purpose. I think he was totally corrupted. Woodrow Wilson brought us the Fed, the FBI, the... um the war. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think Teddy Roosevelt was a setup. I, if it wasn't a setup, it was, it was, let's just say the least conspiratorial interpretation is his selfishness still created the gateway for Woodrow Wilson to get in there. Yeah. I, I, I think that was a, a setup job, but, and what a horrible impact it had. So can we, uh, maybe we can talk about progressivism another time, or we can talk about it now if you have time, but I don't think you do. Um, and I wanted to just bring that to today because I noticed, I, I felt it was totally inauthentic when during Trump's campaign in like 2015, there was all this talk about populism. It was coming to the right. It was a Republican. And I, I felt like this, the way they were presenting it was so European to me. It, it felt so very like, well, these capitalists came from a feudal, you know, they, they got their money, ill-gotten gains, and we need to use the power of government to get some of that back because there's no writing that wrong. That is such an a European interpretation. Like, it's so not American. I would never expect that to come to Republicans. I felt like it was very manufactured. And I feel like it was just, they just use some of the buzzwords or sentiments of the populist era and brought it to today in that framework. And it was completely teed up, I think, in 2012, when there was a so-called leak from the Obama camp that said, we are giving up on the white working class. And I thought, why would they make that announcement? They called it a leak, but it was an announcement. And that was to tee up, in my opinion, this narrative to the right, which ultimately, oh, we have to talk about this if you have a minute, ultimately brought identity politics to the right, finally, after so many decades of that failing. And I will say one point that I've heard over and over again, I think is so interesting, really blew my mind, was that segregation was really foisted upon the South from on high in order to separate, to segregate the poor farmers who were uniting across color lines to have this grassroots power. So there's a, a few things there. So, Answer yeah, what you want. Lot at me. And, and, and I'm, Monica, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to run. I'm about out of time. So if you, Oh, if, okay. If, I thought you had until half past. Yeah, let, let's save some of that for next time. So let me wrap up a couple things, quick thoughts on okay. that. In the progressive moment, they absolutely talk about that. The, the farmers in the South, the blacks started to organize under the Farmers Alliance too. And there was a serious push from some of those farmers on the white side to basically say, if we can get the black guys out here, we can end up ha actually having more votes for populism and literally, the Democrat Party in Mississippi, for example, had the KKK go attack the populist newspapers and tear down their newspapers and, and, and basically put the strong arm on them. And then the rhetoric they used in more places was basically using the, the history of the Confederacy, the lost cause, 
and racism to essentially keep them separated. So that absolutely was part of it. And I think the other analogy that I would use to kind of wrap it up is, so the reason people are talking about populism and the idea that Obama saying we're not going to go after the white working class anymore is it, uh, that's, that, that backfired on them in 2016 with Trump getting elected. Trump essentially did successfully what William Jennings Bryan tried to do. He tried to bring in the populist base, this old working class base that had kind of lost a home in the Democratic Party, that had lost a home in the Republican Party back in the 1800s, that, that Trump brought in that working class but managed to hold together enough traditional Republicans to have a coalition to win in 2016. William Jennings Bryan tried to do that by keeping traditional Democrats with the new populist in 1896 and 1900. The problem was between the Republicans having the momentum of waving the bloody shirt and Teddy Roosevelt being so popular, it just never worked out. Well, that's very interesting. I always think of the, I've been thinking about the segregation issue as kind of a reverse cultural Marxism. I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to ask if maybe the next time we can do, we can get into progressivism, Woodrow Wilson, and the changes to the Constitution that were so pivotal. That was like the moment, that, I would yeah, think, of absolutely. the biggest changes in the Constitution. So you probably had all that prepared, but these, uh, I, you know, I'm never going to let you just uh, cursory attack these things. I want to know everything. So thank you so much for your extra time. Absolutely, Monica. I love to, I love to, like, I look forward to talking about that stuff. It'd be great. Sorry. I have to great. Run. Let's do it next time. Thanks so much, Eric. This is Eric Buchanan and you have been listening to Live Dives. Mm-hmm.